This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with football researcher Jasmine Baba. She discusses her interesting journey into the industry and how coming from a non-traditional background has helped her forge a career. Her work as a freelance consultant, as well as the European football markets such as Germany and Austria, and how this differs from the Premier League. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, Jasmine, really appreciate you jumping on. How are things in your world? Are you all good? Yes, I am enjoying... Well, I miss club football at the moment because it is the World Cup and club football keeps me quite on a strict routine. And now that's gone. I am enjoying the break, but I miss having a routine. Um, so it's hard to like get along with this uh, prolonged break at the moment. But I have less work and I can actually relax, which I didn't get to do during the summer. So yeah, really, really good. Good. Well, I mean, we're currently, this is the third day of the World Cup for people that are listening. Obviously, England won yesterday, so which is which is all good news. Um, from your perspective, how much are you going to watch? Who are you rooting for? Is there any dark horses you can see from your talent ID uh, perspective? Well, I am personally not promoting the World Cup that much um, because of obvious issues. I've not gotten on board with that, not on board with FIFA. But um, being in the job that I am in, I have to keep my eye on a few players, um, a few teams. I really like the look of um, both Senegal and Ghana. Um, Both got outrageous depths of talent, even with um, Mane uh, being injured for Senegal. Um, but yeah, those are my two dark horses for the tournament. Um, maybe, maybe Canada. I'm still a little bit not sure what Canada will offer, but, um, apart from those two, but yeah, I'm not, I'm trying not to watch that much outside of what I need to watch and I'm not really promoting a lot of it on Twitter. I'm just criticizing, um, the things that need to be criticized. And that's not players, that's basically the whole tournament. But that's, that's well, what I'm doing. If you want to get riled up even more, watch the FIFA documentary on Netflix because that will <laughs> that will tip you over the edge because I've been watching that for the last, what, over the weekend. And yeah, it's um, scandalous, really. But... Yeah, no, I've seen some of it and I I just can't. It's, it's everything that we all knew. I, mean, I think that's the most annoying part and it's why people didn't do anything 10 years earlier and it's now on us players like football federations in some capacity but it was all done 10 years it was all those people who took money under the table um and yeah why and all the people probably taking money now under the table to let it, everything go ahead not as planned but letting everything go as head and go ahead of in the way it is and it's just very annoying it gets to the point where you're like actually the super league guys had a point if their idea wasn't so um exclusive and elitist 
Well, actually, the Super League was probably the best way to break away from UEFA, and then UEFA would have had to do something with FIFA. And I think out of all the football federations, if UEFA says something or does something to FIFA, that's the biggest power. It's the powerhouse of teams, of players and players who play in that federation. And um, I think those are the people who hold all the cards for FIFA continuing as it is, or as it yeah as it is which isn't sustainable um in any kind of right uh, only the money right actually i should say but yeah what what can you do for now let's move to happier subjects so <laughs> um obviously came across your work on social media i think really interesting some of your perspectives um and i'd say probably interesting experiences in terms of different um yeah, different areas, different part of the world, different perspective on, on football itself. So for people that maybe haven't come across your work, do you just want to give us, I guess, a brief overview of, of what you do and what that actually entails? So I am, my well, my role under my agency is actually um, scientific researcher. And that's not what I do at all. I'm not scientific in any way. I'm actually quite vague. Um, it covers a a big spectrum of things, um, particularly tactics analysis and scouting and some recruitment. I think last year I would have said I was more on the tactical element uh, analysis element side, and now more of my jobs have been more scouting and recruitment focused. Um, so I do that on a part-time scale with um, the agency that I work for. And yeah, and I do um, freelance writing and freelance consulting outside of that as well. So any people that I personally know who are looking for advice, maybe it be scouting or tactics uh, anal analyzing, um, I give some help there as well. So um, most teams that I cover are within the Germany, German first and second tiers, Austrian first and second tiers and also the Turkish first tier. So I cover a large range of markets, not only within the countries that I've just mentioned, but also I normally look at players from Scandinavia, America, uh, Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, um, and I think that's around it. Yeah, really nice, I guess, broad spectrum of, of the work that you're doing. I think also it's quite fascinating, which we'll, we'll dive into in a sec, is around, you know, those different areas and different different leagues because all, all of them are going to have different styles of play or different um, methodologies and all that type of stuff. So I guess initially what drew you into this sector? What drew you into this work? What, yeah, how did you get into it initially? So... It's a really weird one and I will always get looked at if someone has my CV, um, although it's really updated to be mainly fo football focused now, um, if people even look at, at CVs anymore in my world, um, this was always a um, sticking point. So at school, I left at 16 after GCSEs and then I went to do a BTEC national diploma in music and I went to university 
to study music and I only lasted around a year before dropping out and then I worked and I worked in retail for around five years from around I think I was 17 till I was 22 and then um, I left retail because there was an opening in customer service in a new new, uh, betting company that was just founded. So I worked for the startup customer service there and on the side I was writing just silly crap about football. I was always interested in football. I am the youngest of four and my older brother and sister, um, the two eldest were really into football, would play, would watch, um, would put on the radio and I grew up with football being a family common ground something I would do something I would have a hobby with with the rest of my siblings and I never really that never really left me and I I it's just something that now dictates my life and I mean that in a good way um it's routine it's something that I enjoy it's something in my life that I can't live without and it's got to a point where someone at my work at that betting company saw my work brought me on to help with content even though this was very very simple um hardly anything but I never really gave up just writing about it I went to another bigger betting company to do website content which was like just looking after the websites and writing little tiny details about sports And then I, when I left there, I think I was around 25, I found an editor position at, um, at another betting company. So this one was well more focused in writing about sports, specifically football and being an editor across those things. And we did so many great projects and it was such a big betting company that I got in touch with loads of writers, which are, you know, they're proper famous now. Like if we look at Andy Brazel, um, uh, Kevin Hatchard, those types of people. Um, and from there is where my writing really exploded. And I was doing a little bit more with um, stats and data at the time. And what I didn't know is that I was really good at analysis, but the way my brain works, I could pick up patterns, but I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I was beyond everyone else when I was seeing what was happening on the pitch. And it took me a while to realize that I could, and to realize how to communicate that. And it took a bit of time to realize kind of terms, what exactly was I seeing, how to um, communicate that to everyone else. And I'm not the greatest communicator. I mess up a lot of words, a lot of meanings. And so my focus or what has happened is that I try and translate what I see for basically everyone. And then during the pandemic, I was getting really... um, restless in the UK and I there was a role for me to be more of a reporter more of a journalist and I did not like that at all I didn't really like um 
writing so much or trying to gauge people's perceptions or storytelling. I didn't like a lot of the world of sports journalism and I'm very socially anxious. Um, I, I'm autistic and I just thought in my brain, I was like, can I go to a stadium by myself and go through like the press and interviews? And I just went, no, I can't. I know I can't. And that kind of built my way into just leaving the UK, going to Germany, because out of all the other markets outside of Premier League Championship, I was the strongest on. And um, basically, I had networked to a point where I could go to Germany. People knew of me there better than in England, and they knew what I could do and help me structure that way so yeah I networked pretty well um I think (laughs) I don't know if I've networked pretty well probably not on the stage it's other people do um but yeah I moved to Germany I was really privileged um to have the contacts that I had and also um having a partner also from Germany so I wasn't moving purely for work Brexit was coming up and after um after December 2020 it would have been a lot harder for me to make a decision and move so I took the decision to quit my job and move in November 2020 and get started um finding a job was uh quite easy for me um as I said it is quite privileged it, it is privileged when you start to know those people who will give you a chance There are a lot of people that if anyone is interested in getting into this world, you will meet a lot of people who find you great, but you will find fewer people who will give you a chance. And people, there are quite a few um, situations where people can tell you, you're only here because of this person, you're only here instead of that person. I will say that's true. I am. But in every single case, you will find someone who has had some help in some capacity. There was a person or people that got a person who they're in front of you. The difference is in in football is that um, you still need to make it work. Someone can get you into a place, but if you're not working, they are very very ruthless and will throw you out so I'm only here because I'm good and if I got here based on anything else I would be further up from where I am if that was if that was a part of it um so it is quite fun when people say and you hear the kind of sexist uh, bs that goes around and you're only there because you slept there something like that and like if I got here because I slept my way up I would be a lot higher up and that really riles them up because I'm just unfazed by that kind of um talk especially on social media well I think there's two things on that I think that the thick skin you've obviously developed around that is good because you know as you said football can be a notoriously hostile environment um in, in all phases be it from players in changing rooms to like, like you mentioned there um and also I think it was quite refreshing it's kind of a different way into into the industry because quite often you hear about 
such as myself, a failed player, you kind of mosey your way in at some point, you kind of coach and then you stick around. Um, or, you know, you, you, as you mentioned, you're friends with someone, they bring you in and all of that type of stuff. But to come from that kind of betting background um, or, you know, non-traditional background to then kind of be in this space, I think it's quite nice to see how, uh, I guess, the sports industry, football industry has realised actually we can get practitioners from outside that might provide a unique skill set that maybe we had traditionally missed um so i guess on that front how do you think the use of statistics has helped you within this industry because as you said like in a, from a betting perspective i i don't know a poor bookmaker so they obviously know how how you know statistics work etc how have you found that it was was there anything particular that you thought actually i can really add uh, value to the clubs i'm working with or people i'm working with in this space funnily enough n- not as much as i thought in a way um i think that's just because of how data is working in the space right now you need to be really good at um machine learning kind of technologies which i'm i mean i know a bit of code i know enough code to get me around um but in terms of some of the data data scientists are doing it is kind of crazy to see how this kind of boom in um data scientists and you know just technology technological advances around football clubs so it did help in time of um knowing what to um pick and how to express my point with data i think gambling had given me had had given me that basis um for sure and i think it does leverage someone in like my position who's more i don't want to say eye test but that more tactical analysis without any data and using data to back what i'm seeing is there's a lack of that at the moment in people and um i think a lot of clubs are missing someone like that so to be that person is really really helpful for me and that is down to my background um it definitely has helped in as i said a writing manner when it comes to uh, where i came from and applying that especially in some of my earlier work for the betting companies um but yeah it's just the fact that data as a whole has has exploded it's kind of changed the whole interface of what it is to be to know machines and numbers and i think i i think betting is like one of the easiest ways to get into football in a way or to know football because if you are one of those people who knows how to uh build those machines who calculate and read the odds especially if you're taking it from everywhere else and apply that from the data from your football game you get a um you basically get what you got you have at brentford so, you know, the gambling guys came in, knew how it was going to run and what. And I won't apply the the very overused title of Moneyball because I think that's overused and I think that's used in the wrong context. But I think a lot of people realize how big people from a gambling background, a mathematics background can have in football now based on that kind of knowledge and there's people like on twitter with soccer soccer matics david sumter 
as well as like the Brentford guys. Um, there's a lot more I'm probably missing in actual mathematical statistics who can that I am not that the, those person. <laughs> I'm not those kind of people. But I do know, and again, it's what people are lacking from either space, the data or the tactical space is how to make it work for football or how to translate it back, how to make it work in data. So I don't do much coding myself. I don't make any of these systems myself, but I know how what to look for on Opta to make a good statistic that's going to help me, for instance. So there's one... Everyone loves XG and XGA now. Um, however, when looking at the Spider Bundesliga teams, those weren't properly predicting where they would be in the table or their performance. So we narrowed it down to... Um, I, I've, I can't re ever remember what I actually narrowed it down to. It was something like um, XG on target um, difference with shots on target difference. And that gave a, a far clearer picture than XG and XGA where it was actually used. So it's it's kind of knowing what you're looking for in these spaces rather than knowing how to do it. And no, that's where I come in because I yeah, don't know. And, um, it. <laughs> makes complete sense. There's a I think it's called the um, Sloan Conference out in in Boston, MIT, and I they. It was basically they have all the industry looking at data analysis and all that type of stuff, and have NBA, NFL, football, and they they put up previous years conferences. And I remember when I was first looking into this space, watching one of their um one of their like panels, and something that really resonated with me that kind of ties into that is football now has all the data that you could possibly want. It's figuring out what's useful. Um, and being um, guided by the data and not being data driven was, I think, the line that came out. Because actually, as you said there, it's like you, you can't drive just looking for data because there's so much. It's like, well, we're going to use that in this specific context, which I think is really interesting. From your perspective there that you're mentioning around, um, I guess, identifiers and all that type of stuff. Um what do teams or what do people come talking to you for? So you mentioned that, I guess, tactical sides. What type of work would get commissioned to you to say, can you look into this for us? Or is it very much you produce content and then people go, actually, we're interested in that? How does that process work? It's actually the former. So I get quite a few briefs and then I will go work from go work on them and it honestly depends what someone is looking for so I've done and it's not just clubs and people either it is media too it can be a media brief um so I have um done tactical analysis of clubs for head coaches um including the third German league um I have done scouting advice for several they will just come up to you and be like I'll either get a list that I need to work on on players and say who's basically just your general scouting reports what are they good at 
how are they with the ball or how are they without the ball, all of that. Um, and that tends to be more of my day recently. Sometimes I will get asked to have a look at a whole structure of a league and compare it to a one club. And that will be like taking in the stocks of, of players and their ages and finding out what their next few um, windows will have to look like at the end of the season, mid-season. Um, and that is normally the basis of my like my days and my weeks. Um, sometimes, yeah, it will be more tactical analysis. So it's either a game or how a team is doing and what their weaknesses are. Um, and sometimes it will be from media as well, that kind of tactical analysis. Um, and there has been some examples of the latter as well that you've seen maybe one or two of how I analyze things and particularly in media they'll go through my agency and then just ask oh can we have this for this match for, for pre-match just so we know what to talk about from an analysis space so that's all quite fun I think my favorite part I, I do love video scouting but I do love taking stock of a team's players and looking what they need to do for um for their future transfer windows. I think maybe because it's the least risk. Anyone who knows scouting, they, they can't argue with this. Scouting is a gambler's game. You have no idea how that... You, you can have all the data in the world. You can have all the greatest scouts in the world. You have no idea how a player is going to perform for you and some of the money that is involved that, that is tied slightly to your name is bloody scary i gave advice um to one player and they bought that player and um i didn't know how much money it was i for some reason i didn't look at it or i couldn't remember and i found out afterwards and i was like i'm gonna be sick I was just like, oh, great. Because I didn't know he, that person was going for so much. Um, and yeah, um, it's, it's, while that is fun, while I have the greatest faith in myself, well, not really, my partner will probably disagree with that, but <laughs> while I feel like I have the greatest faith in myself, I um, it does make me feel sick sometimes, and I do prefer the kind of easier taking stock and just telling people what they need to do rather than um, being a gambler myself. It sounds like what you need to do is try and get a uh, sell-on fee percentage if they get sold off for a profit get yourself a little sell-on fee <laughs> how much it's for um in terms of like templates and formatting that you're you're being asked to do does that come as part of the commission of work do they say we want you to do this work and here's the format we use or is it very much you have your own style and because you have your own style they then uh, come to you for that particular type of type of work so um, I think it honestly depends on the league of teams. So higher the league, they will basically want something more in their branding. I don't think they've ever given me something to work with and I've just set it to their branding. Um, and, but most things we will do, especially second, third, lower even leagues, 
they will normally just give us the brief and I will just do it in our own style. I have, um, I also have someone who is above me, basically my boss or just like direct line. And because I am very, um, not clumsy, just all over the place at times, especially the way I talk and speak and work sometimes, he will check it for me and just make sure I've, I make sense. Um, so, um, any other formatting issues, um, he normally takes over with templating. Um, so it's really nice to have a team or basically another colleague that will do that stuff for you on top if I've missed anything out um, or anything like that. So it is quite a guilt, not guilt-free way to work. It's quite a comfortable way to work in, um, yeah, because there are times where I, I can work, but I will be quite scatty. And I obviously don't want that to overspill into professionalism even though I think they'll be fine because a lot of it is in English and sometimes it will need to be translated sometimes they will just have it in English and English is not their first language so I am available to make mistakes and they'll get the kind of gist that I'm talking about so it is quite nice to be working in that way where even though there is pressure to do well um, there's always pressure to do well. I know that I'm not going to be like worrying about, I don't know, the same kind of pressures you would get under in a club. Uh, scouting has to be done like this. That needs to be done. I, I see how it works. I know how it works. I know how pressurized it can be at times, especially nearing to a transfer window. Normally not the transfer windows themselves because people don't know this but you know most of the these at good clubs anyway most of your plans are done most of your plans are done ages in advance before you come into the window it is very rare that you go last minute you want a player it, it and that doesn't really happen unless all of your choices for some reason or other are unavailable you will not go oh we're suddenly in this player always in with that player and I don't think people really know or understand how that works and with transfer rumors because that's one thing that really really drives me up all on social media there is so many transfer rumors that aren't picked up on because no one tells anyone no one actually says it you know they it only gets out in media if it does if it suits someone and especially agents post rumors are just played by plays by agents usually. So or just people on Twitter trying to um start something. That that's also very, very common now. Yeah, I think the agents one's a really interesting space because you said people trying to leverage moves or leverage more money, you know, a simple one. If your player's in talks with the club, if you were a sudden release that there's someone else interested, that could up their wage packet or up your commission or anything like that so i think that yeah it's a really interesting space i think in terms of what you've mentioned there around the um i guess identifying targets for teams or what that could look like future windows how would you go around assessing what 
um, what high potential players could be suitable for that team. So is there any key identifiers that you have and say, actually, you know, normally strikers of this type of characteristics do well in this league or how does that work from a identifying point of view? Is there, is there any kind of things that you hang your hat on in that space? So it varies team from team, obviously, um, tactic to tactic, um, ages that are needed um, because we have um, we'll also look at if a player is in their peak post-peak, pre-peak, or how much does that club have at the moment um, of these ages and do they need more of which one? So um, that can also be an identifier. Um, and that is where it gets quite varied and different. So we have data markers, so it can be, you know, um, normally XG for teams aren't people don't understand this either and it's quite fun to tell them when it comes to teams xg is not really an indicator but when it comes to actual um players uh especially obviously strikers that is when xg is normally kind of used for scouting and stuff like probably more x threat and how many key passes in a sequence and those kind of identifiers for more attacking players um, but as a team, you don't really use XG to see your performance. You might use it to back it up, but normally um, you would use the tactics analysis from that. And that's mainly because if you said we have a high XG, this team is performing well, you don't get to really see if they're performing with that coach's philosophy, if how their style of play is affecting if they've got a better chance or a weaker chance of scoring. Um, it can become quite convoluted. There's obviously, if they missed the penalty but scored the rebound, you're adding your team by 1. 1.5, 1.6 XG. And those are where those weaknesses come from. So we only really use XG as a... Um, as a player type indicator so that's one identifier um most of the other ones come especially if you have to compare leagues there'll be a data sets that pick up that player to fit in your team but secondly is good old um eye test analysis because you can see what happens in that league and to see if they could be um strong enough to cope in your team in your league so um yeah that those are the kind of indicators that we work with and how we go from an identifier to okay we've got this data set which says this player should fit now let's take a look at them are they actually going to fit do they look like they uh read the game well um they know their awareness do they do you think they're speed is quick enough to cope with the nature of the German league for instance I think one of the most interesting things in if a player will fit or not especially in the German league right now is how fast they can be and I don't think especially from a Premier League um, analysis point of view 
they don't understand how quick German teams are. That now that when I go and watch a Premier League game, I'm like, this is slow. <laughs> this isn't moving. They're not moving the ball as fast anymore. So it's those kind of indicators that you have to kind of keep an eye on now, especially if you're in Germany. You've done my job for me then, because you, you've managed to wiggle it into what my next question was going to be, which is perfect. So obviously, how do you identify those players that maybe are underutilised in their league? So if we want to use, I guess, a similar example to what you said there, if you go to Spain or potentially England more so now, it's very, very uh, possession based, you know, trying to work your way up the pitch. Sky Sports have actually got a, a deal with Bundesliga now. So there's loads more Bundesliga games on, which is amazing. And I've actually made an active effort to try and watch some of them because I felt that you get to see different styles of football. I liken it to basketball. I, I honestly couldn't believe it in terms of it was kind of like attack. Like everyone go full throttle. If they got held up, they'd then try and play. And then the next thought from the next team was to attack. And similar to what you said there, the pace of it was like the first thing I saw is like, wow, they, their first thought is I will go forward. I'm going to find a way to be direct and score as part of a, a counter. So how do you find a player that maybe, um, isn't performing that role or isn't being allowed to perform that role in a particular market but that could in this one so like Werner for example the way that Chelsea played I think is abundantly clear didn't actually fit Timo Werner Werner's very good with space in behind he actually may have done better at Tottenham if you'd had Kane dropping in with Son and Werner running in beyond that might have been a, a type of dynamic that would work better than for him than playing that possession-based game so, sorry, I'm going to ask this long, very long-winded question, but how do, <laughs> how do you go around identifying those players that are being underutilised or a skill set that might not be used in their particular market, but that could be if we move them across? I mean, they will show some promise at some point that will probably push their data up. So um, that is where you find them. You have a specific kind of um you have a specific kind of um data point from which tells you oh if i'm looking for speed or if i'm looking for xyz someone will flash up and quite often we will look lower down because they're cheaper let's be honest they're, they're cheaper and um that's where they will appear and even if they're underutilized, even if they're not in the right team or what have you, they will normally show glimpses of what they're good at from a data point of view in those games still. If they run fast, if they're um a good they're good at intercepting tackles, if they're good at aerial threats, those strengths won't go away. And that's why they are so easy to pick up on. And that is kind of the way you do it. And then then you will need to see them play. If you know that they are capable of running, um, say, oh God, I'm not good with speeds off from the top of my head. Say they're, they're good at running, like they have sprints of 30 kilometers per hour. And you know, for your team, that's going to be quite fast. But they're in a more possession-based team. 
you know they can run it because the data has told you and like let you know like oh this person can run this fast but if you see they're in a more possession-based team they're still going to run every now and then so you know that you can back that up um and then you just need to be like okay do we think he can do those runs that he has done before in this team etc um so it's basically just because you can't watch every player which is why data has come in to shorten that load you will miss some you will miss some of the good targets that probably would work for you lower down but it's it's a mixture of data luck analysis um and seeing where it gets you uh yeah and and it's funny that you mentioned the Timo Werner point as well because it, it was apparent to me even before I was, I think, I can't remember when he joined, but I think it was before I had really started working in football. I knew that was just not going to work. And he only had one good season as well. So it was like, it was a very big risk to take that. And it wasn't a good one because they probably just saw a striker performer and be like, we need a goal scorer. Let's get him without giving any kind of knowledge in would he have fit is he good with players close to him rather than just in space but those are the kind of things you kind of wiggle out with data and analysis and i think a really good one a really good example of this um at the moment anyway is um Werder Bremen buying Oliver Burke well not buying i think he was signing i can't remember yeah, um Werder Bremen getting Oliver Burke as a um, backup striker purely and that was based more on his data because everyone in the UK if you talk about Oliver Burke you get some reactions from the Scottish from the West Brom fans and from the Sheffield United fans Um, but you know scoring against Dortmund in the last minute to win 3-2 um, shows how that data can prove people who have seen him play wrong and where um, a player's greatest strengths can be utilised, even if they're underutilised in other clubs. And so would you compare it to like a um, league average or compare it to like a team average? So if you look at interceptions, for example, there may be someone that is playing in a very defensive style of game, which is going to get high interceptions, which obviously is going to inflate their numbers. Whereas if you've got an individual that their number pops out of a team that's, you know, maybe very attacking, but you go, actually, he's having 2.5 more interceptions than anyone else in his team at the moment. That seems to be an anomaly. Do you, do you go off the team rather than the league, or is it kind of a combination of the two? it's definitely a combination of the two um it's like attackers in france um it, france is known to be a bit more i'm not sure if it's true this season but um a couple of seasons back you will, would see that attackers take less shots league wide and you, if you watch the games um they are more they are more defensive they've got better stronger defensive structures than in the Bundesliga, which can give you so much space sometimes. They've, they don't want to uh, defend counterattacks anymore. Um, France is not so much like that. So you take that into account. You know it's kind of based on that, a stronger league, and then you have to apply it 
to the team that you're working for. Um, I mean, team, yes and no. I think it's, if they're in a worse team, you are more likely to take in the team average and be like, well, yes, they are worse, but the whole team is worse. But if you take that one player, if he's still performing this level well in a relegation team, then obviously you've got a better player. Um, so yeah, it's a, definitely a combination of the two. Is there any particular piece of work around this space that you've done that I guess you're most proud of or that have like had a number of intricacies that allowed you to, I guess, identify one of these one of these players that's then gone on to do well in their newer team or has done well when they have moved, even if it wasn't to a team you were working with? Oh, that's a really interesting one. Um, there's one player that... I am generally really proud, like, I am proud of him going to a Champions League team, um, for sure. Um, so I think that is, like, my own proudest moment. Um, but in terms of the scouting space, I don't know. I, I, I just like seeing some all players do well. Um, so that one is probably my most proudest moment, but I'm more proud of um analysis and recruitment rather like setting up these structures rather than actual scouting itself but if you find someone on a free and you give them to a team and you see them do well I think that is the most fulfilling part of the job because I just look at especially champion champions league teams especially in the premier league and you're just like, why did they buy this person when you could get this person for half the price? And that's how my brain now runs. I'm like, do you really need this 50 million striker when there's this person who's 10 million? I can buy five of these players for 10 million and one of them will stick because that's how it works rather than this 50 million striker. And I do feel that a lot more. I, I don't think I would feel fulfilled in a really big team because I would be like always looking for the cheap option when they're like, oh, we can just buy a Giroud or something. And I'll be like, but that's not fun. So I'll come on to the analysis bit before we do. Have you got any suggestions for a right back for Tottenham? Because we are scrambling around for one at the moment. <laughs> Did, didn't you buy DJ Spence? Yeah. But Isn't he a right back? He is. He's going out on loan now. I don't think Conte fancies him as a right wing back at the moment. So, yeah, he's going out. And then we've got a choice between Matt Doherty and Emerson Royale. You could have had Philip Kostic. I, don't, I actually don't think Philip Kostic would have done that well. But there's actually... There was um there was one that left Blackburn to go Wigan on, the, um, on a free. I can't remember. I think his name is... Ryan something he looked really good um obviously championship space but yeah he was on a free I think only Wigan picked him up so I don't know what the issues were there I don't know if he's even playing at Wigan but um let me find out yeah any help would be much appreciated I'll try um Ryan Niambe was on a free from uh, I, yeah, Blackburn last season and only Wigan picked him up and I really liked the way he played so I would have said is he actually right footed or am I getting oh no right for Tidegger 
oh, yes, it's in German, and I forget that I need to translate. Um, yeah, um, yeah, he was. What year are we in? Twenty twenty-two. Yeah, twenty-five-year-old or twenty. Yeah, twenty-four, twenty-five-year-old. Um, Black Ben now Wigan is someone that I really, really liked, especially as a wing back because he, I think he worked a little bit more better when pushing forward. Um, I really liked him. Um, so yeah, that that was my pick. But he's obviously been picked up at Wigan now. Not been keeping track of how he's doing. So I don't know if that was good or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep we'll keep that on the mark to see if um, yeah see how Jed Spence gets on. Hopefully he does well because he was good obviously good in the championship last year. So I'm going to ask you a question now. Please don't take offence to this question because um, I think it's a common misconception. So I'd be really interested to know your perspective on it and your industry. Obviously, you mentioned a lot around tactical stuff. Now, I guess there's a perception within some clubs and some environments that unless you've played or unless you've been on a load of coaching courses, etc., that maybe you don't have the experience to understand the tactical side of the game. So from yours, I guess, one, how do you combat that? from your space and, and your kind of um, working through the environment. But two, how do you, um, I guess, educate yourself so you can kind of answer that back with really good analysis and kind of go, you're talking nonsense. And by the way, here's an article to show you why, or here's a body of work to show you why. So yeah, how do those two things mirror up? I, I think the kind of mood with that, in a lot of spaces is changing. I think just purely down to how many coaches now don't have a football background and loads of people in football clubs just don't have a football background, especially if you're in um, kind of data analysis, video analysis, scouts, um, coaches, as I said, uh, Sari is a, probably a main one. I guess, I think to a point Mourinho, uh, I I'm pretty sure I saw a football club under his name, so I'm like, okay, not him. But like, especially in Germany, a lot of coaches aren't having the same kind of football background that you would get. So um, I think Domenico Tedesco, um, Julian Nagelsmann doesn't really count, I would say. Um, and I think that's helped change a lot of that kind of old-fashioned kind of talk. I mean, my partner's not from a football background and he's had he's been assistant coach of two Spider Bundesliga clubs and um and is now in the Bundesliga. I I, I honestly I, I, I haven't really faced a lot of that talk in Germany so much. Maybe I wouldn't understand it coming more from England because you normally do find those opinions more. But um, some of the Premier League clubs that I've talked to also don't kind of hold that. I don't think they really recognise that just because, okay, those are the clubs that have kind of come from like really uh, non-conventional backgrounds as well. So I think they have the kind of culture to um, not really take that that as big or just don't really take it anymore um and I've been lucky to never face that opinion um I and I think it's due to despite me saying that I'm not a good communicator when it comes to football I guess I am and I think they understand everything that is 
I say so they don't feel threatened by it to then go and be like, how do you know you've never you've never played? And um, but I have played on the Emirates and nearly broke a girl's leg, so I'm pretty sure we're in the same remit. Um, so yeah, I'm basically a league catamole as a player, um, <laughs> with a really good finishing touch. But yeah, I've, 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 I'm very, very privileged to have not had that much negativity in actual football, um, even as a woman. Okay, there's been some, but compared to the spaces in like journalism at just social media in general, most of the backlash I've had there compared to football, like football has been minimal. And there, I've heard stories and there is a lot of sexist and misogynistic stuff. But um, for me personally, I've found it in other spaces more than football. Um, uh, I don't know why exactly. Um I do realize that I'm in more of a privileged position. Um, and I think they know I will start trouble if that happens. Um, so yeah, I've luckily enough, I've not had to be in that position. If that ever did happen, I would just tell them, well, you can listen to me if you want, if that is your choice, but I'm going to be here either way. So it's up to you if you want to take on what I'm about to say or not. That does not affect me only affects you no that makes sense it's a positive that you said that actually because again i think that um historically it would have been one of those if you don't play kind of old boys club you don't play you're not in it but it's nice to see and i think i there was a um on netflix i don't know if it's still on there there was a program years ago that was talking about how the german fa got people through their coaching licenses and it was it highlighted how that actually people had come from non-traditional backgrounds into it and stuff and it's really good all in all in german so it meant more of a watching brief for me rather than, than listening but yeah i found i found that fascinating in terms of that that process how do you from your perspective I, I mentioned kind of around the, the, the educating yourself on that space and keeping up to date with, you know, particular trends or, or new ideas that are coming into the game. Is it a case of what everyone does, which is just just watch and have briefs on Twitter? Or is there anything you actually actively do to go, actually, yeah, I'm going to stay ahead of the game in this space? I try and learn. I try and see what what I feel like is the next big thing coming. Um, in terms of like tactical trends, I will just get that from watching. I think um, I don't really like to predict or etc. Um, if I think I know what will happen, I will say, but I am more of here is the evidence in front of me and then I will make a point rather than the other way around. Um, which is surprisingly not how many people do things. Um, I'm especially in the UK and especially UK spaces, um, people normally make a point and then find the evidence rather than the other way around. Um, so that is basically how I keep up to date. If there's anything new happening, it will be um just finding it. And I realize that I will probably never be the person in front of uh, someone or new at something. Um, I think there's a lot of 
And it's bad from like a mental health space as well that end in like a kind of burning out to feel like you have to be on top of everything. You have to know everything new um, and be first to know and stuff like that. And there is sometimes guilt that am I doing this properly? Do I know what I'm doing? This new thing, why haven't I, why didn't I know this? But it's more, it's better to just like wait it out and then just become the best when you know the clarity of it. So if it's a tactical trend that everyone's talking about, you just kind of have to run the through a few questions, especially if you get affected by social media. Like, is this an actual trend? Is this what that team is intending to do? Um, will it actually take off for other teams? Is it actually relevant? So a lot of the time, it's not really relevant. It's not relevant to how the team works. It might just be like a set piece or something. Set pieces are important, but that's not the way I work. I don't understand set pieces outside the bare minimum. And I'm not a set piece specialist. I'm also not a goalkeeper specialist. So those two things go over my head and I'm okay with that because we have specialist people who know that a little bit better than I. So I just keep to the things that I'm good at because at basically people will want you for what your actual talents are and not what you're trying to convolute yourself with. So um, I just try and keep on top of the things that I'm good at and if there's something new trying to incorporate it into my space by watching it and seeing if it comes more common for example again not my space but the person lying behind the free kick like that that is one that actually is important because everyone uses that now everyone I've not seen a team not use that anymore but I won't understand it because it's set pieces and I'm just like yeah as long as as everyone's positioned properly within a set piece positioning is my like go-to but anything else in a set piece no not does not include me i don't i don't that's not my remit no that one i'm a bit confused by because i didn't see many balls go underneath the wall but again it's something one for you like you want to talk about non-relevant trends as well i saw it on on twitter the, the birthplace of many a good idea um was I think maybe in Brazil this team did a sixteen uh, six player rotation when they're playing out from the back where they just ran round in a circle halfway around the pitch till one of them available got available. Um, so yeah, have a look at that because if you want to talk about trends that definitely won't won't catch on, that was one because I was watching going, why would you possibly set this up? But yeah, an interesting one. Um, in terms of. Um, I guess differences of league and and whatnot and tactical spaces around there. How have you found that coming from obviously the UK with the way that we play over here and the, the tactical implementation compared to the Bundesliga that we mentioned earlier? But obviously you mentioned right at the start of this that you know you do work in Scandinavia or you do work in Turkey, um, Austria. Is there big differences and, and what are those big differences that you see from a from a tactical perspective? It's funny, tactical, uh, well, first of all, it's Germany compared to, especially in Premier League, is definitely, and probably to a point Austria as well because of Red Bull entity. And I've talked about this a lot, how Red Bull has affected football in Europe. And I 
don't think uh, England has ha- had so much of a, it hasn't been affected so much by it yet. So um, all the kind of coaches and actually players scouted under the Red Bull system and the coaches that were basically um, coaches that adopted Ralph Ragnick's principles, anyone who was at um, Red Bull Leipzig and youth uh, Salzburg or even Liefering, all of those coaches have quite a defined set of principles and you can see how that has affected especially German and Austrian football. The, as I said, the speed of the players, people are scouting more um, pacey players, explosive, direct. And so you've got players like Christopher Nkunku and Musa Diaby becoming more popular and that being the blueprint. And it is surprising at how many coaches, especially last year or the year before, were from that entity and then the football that they would play. So all of this like high intensive press at focus on quick transitions and then no one could do anything in possession with the ball. Um, to a point that we saw like Dortmund concede over 50 goals, one of their weakest defences in around 15 years. Um, same with Borussia Mönchengladbach. And as I said, as we were talking about earlier, the kind of pace difference is due to everyone having the philosophy of Ralph Ragnick or being developed some kind of way from Ralph Ragnick. Um, and that's something that has definitely is definitely different and you have to be like, okay, it's not that the football's slow, or maybe it is slow, but they are just more possessional based sides, and you're going to have to work with that. Um, that is probably one of the main um, things that you see. And probably it's just that where have these coaches come from? And what kind of styles have they adapted to? Because, you know, there's now Roger Schmidt at Benfica. Um, Benfica with that Red Bull background. It is Benfica, right? Exactly. It's one of those things that my brain will actually just blank out on and I will get it wrong. And well, because they called Jesse Marsh as well, obviously he's over with Leeds and he started off. Exactly. At... And you and that's why it is kind of like that. Yeah, Benfica, because they're also Lisbon and they use that in Germany and that really confuses me so you're starting to see kind of this domino effect uh you had i think it was oscar garcia at reims um you've got roger schmidt and benfica who's doing magnificently well and then we're starting to see what jesse marshall leads we don't know if that will actually work yet because i think some especially smaller clubs have figured out if you give him the ball he can't do much and those are the kind of principles that you see changing from Germany, Austria, and then when you go to um, the UK. Turkey, I can't speak that much about. It's a newer market for me. Um, and also, it's, it can, it's, it's very crazy. Just the kind of, everyone's seen the kind of 
recruitment strategies these teams adopt and the amount of um, older players and older superstars that you get from the Spanish, the English, the German leagues that have gone to Turkey. So um, that one is still completely wild. Don't know what's really happening there or how they play. Um, so it, that one's going to be a very exciting one to try and figure out. Um, but all of these things you have to take into account. Normally you can do them on case-to-case -case basis and especially in scaling, all you need to do is like keep it to a team and a league standard. Um, and you don't really have to compare a lot of the leagues together. So I'm quite lucky in that regard. But you see patterns, like there's a lot of scouting from the German one and two leagues, well, especially the second and third leagues from Denmark, um, Sweden in particular. Um, they like that kind of market because it tends to be cheaper. You tend to sometimes even get a Champions League, Europa League, Conference League, Swedish player to come play in the second Bundesliga and then progress. So um, it's quite interesting the patterns of scouting and the patterns of tactical, um, just tactics analysis and how from where coaches have come and like the blueprint of players and where they're coming from sets that into motion and sets this kind of whole dom domino effect of how countries are different and how they're the same. Okay, so I've, I've got two more questions before we'll let you go and enjoy the rest of your day. Um, the Ralph Ragnit one, Obviously, he came over to the UK. Um, we're just after the Cristiano Ronaldo interview, which didn't seem particularly positive. Um, and over here, I guess the perception I have at least is a, a well-intentioned individual that probably went into a role that didn't didn't fit him, realised he probably couldn't alter the state of the club as he'd want and thought, yeah, that's me done. What's the perception of him in Germany and is it as glowing as I guess we were informed in the UK because we were you know nicknamed I think the professor and kind of going oh he's going to change everything about Man United and that didn't necessarily take place so what does that look like in you know in, in Germany? There is a lot of respect for Ralph Ragnick either and I think there's people know the amount of um the amount of influence he has on the game and how to build the team. He is probably the greatest person and he is so clever that his team is as smart as him. So his assistant manager under the Austrian team right now is Lars Konecka, obviously was under Pep Guardiola, um, one of the greatest analysts ever. Um, so he is respected at, as that point he does have a glowing um cv i think the only thing people will dislike him for is being a part of the rebel kind of entity which people do not like it's either due to their politics their the fact that they're not traditional loads of these things and i think that's the only time people will kind of make fun out of him or where he's come from on that bit but there's still a great respect. He did wonders with his clubs because he knew how to structure them. He knew how to put an infrastructure into the play into place where it was game development, scouting, recruitment. He did all of those things, and he is still to this day, even by the 
top, top coaches, Jürgen Klopp, Thomas Tuchel, still greatly respected. So that is very true. On the point of him coming to Man United, I thought it was going to be good, but that was on a condition that Man United would actually take anything of what he wanted to do, which it looks like they didn't. And I think that was all what we were going to expect. Man United is a weird club because they seem to only want to kind of buy superstars in a way or have a youth and promote youth. And only these two things, they won't go really middle of the round players that actually fit in their system. Um, and to get someone like Ralph Ragnick, especially on a uh, interim basis, and be like, oh, you're going to be football, the director of football afterwards, and then not also follow through with that. It's very, very strange. I think Ten Hag is a great manager, but I think the problems at Man United still remain the same. Um, and that's basically that the fact that they needed a complete wide restructure, but no one's willing to actually do the work for that. So I think... I know Eric Eric Ten Hag was like, I've got my own analysts, but then Ralph Ragnick wasn't supposed to be an analyst, so I don't know how they managed to screw the pooch on that one, but they did. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's a really interesting point. I think, for me, at least from the outside, what Alex Ferguson used to do really well is go and raid his competitors, and it's something that Bayern Munich do probably as, as good as anyone. Actually, they don't do it that much. Like, like people have that common misconception. Um, I don't think. Okay, now it might be different because they bought Sabitzer when Julian Nagelsmann came in from RB Leipzig. But um, before then, they hadn't. Well, from Dortmund, because the main one they kind of suggest is Dortmund. They hadn't bought anyone or brought on anyone from Dortmund since Levin, maybe Goetze. I can't remember the last one because people like Hummels, Lewandowski, uh, not Lewandowski, but Goetze, they went um, like Bayern, Dortmund, Bayern or Dortmund, Bayern, Dortmund. So the years I can't remember, but I want to say the last one that you bought from um, Dortmund was Lewandowski in 2014-15. They haven't done it that too often in recent years. Um, but I think with Germany and the com whole competitiveness is that Bayern have been the best managed club for a long time um, and because they've restructured everything from when they lost out to Jürgen Klopp and that has been a legacy not many people have been able to match, especially Dortmund. Um, but yes, the whole manager role from like the late mid late nineties, where the man the head coaches were basically directors of football as well. So Arsene Wenger, probably the next common one, the next one you can name under um, Alex Ferguson, were very good at running their clubs, especially Arsenal, along with David Dean, and um, the fact that these old school. Um, clubs have not I think it's only Man United though have not really geared up to this modern change of several people several departments and this is how they run is their biggest problem yeah no for sure and I think that the Ragnit one would be interesting because I think as a, again we spoke earlier as a Spurs fan 
Conte's got an infinite lifespan in him. He's not going to be there forever. Hopefully win something in that time. But I wonder whether if you had a, a Rangnick with like a potch coming in between who both like that high energy, whether that would be a, a good mirror, just an idea. But yeah, the, the point I was going to make on United thing, they bought really well of raiding other teams. So like as a Spurs fan, Carrick went, Berbatov went, Sheringham went before that. And they seem to do a really good job of going, if there's anyone... Van Persie. Van Persie for Arsenal. You know, they always seem to be like Van der Sar from Fulham, I know it's a different extent, but they kind of identify players that were doing well within the league for teams that might cause them problems when they're going away and go, yeah, we'll have them. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's a really interesting one you said about that middle ground. That actually, it doesn't necessarily need to be a superstar. It can be ones that are there and you're going to help them make that jump is what they did for, for a lot of people. Like Ronaldo was the same, got him from Lisbon. Young kid helped him, Rooney, you know, the, the Ferdinand with, with Leeds and stuff. So I think that's a really, really interesting point. It'd be interesting to see how they get on moving forward. And then the last one for me, and this is a really personal question from my end what's the post-match analysis like in Germany because I remember listening to a podcast where they'd mentioned how I think in Italy it was very different to what we have in the UK so obviously UK is very headline based what can I get them to say that's going to sell us a newspaper on a Sunday morning is it a similar outlook in Germany or is it more of a tactical perspective what what does it look like from a post-match point of view with, with you guys um, so I don't dabble that much in completely, not post-match, but like not instant post-match analysis. I deal with more long-term kind of uh, projects in terms of analysis and it will give, be a couple of days or a day or two. But I feel like um, unless they are asked, which is not common, I, they don't give too much away. Probably because, you know, it kind of shows up a hand of weakness and I think coaches know a bit better than that. But also, despite from one or two outlets, they're not as reactionary here in Germany. Unless like they're being pushed and they're under pressure, those are the only times we will see like something really muddy or like really really like gritty from a person from a coach um from an analysis team but like a lot of that is just it's quite calm actually I I would say it's probably calm calmer than the Premier League a lot of people will just you know give it to their analysts for the next day sleep on it do plus one the next day and then come back on the Monday or the Tuesday and then start to work through what has gone wrong whereas I'm not sure about how the Premier League do it but it definitely does seem less reactionary and there's this bit more time even not even in like Premier League but even the German coaches in the Premier League I think they run it in the same way and that's why they had been so beneficial or or a lot more troublesome to other teams is um kind of reactionary due process Um, But yeah, it's a lot. One of the things I love most about Germany is that it isn't as reactionary based. It's a lot more logic based. And um, that works for me a lot better because I think everyone carries or a lot of people, not everyone, because don't know everyone. And I'm sure there are some troublemakers, but people carry a better attitude 
they are also more open to criticism when it's not reactionary. So um, yeah, that, that part is different for sure. Sounds wonderful. Right, last question before um, before I let you enjoy your day, um, which is who is um, the most influential person you've worked with um, in this space and why? Ooh, that is really difficult. I'm going to be really boring, but without the support of my partner, I would not be here. He has taught me how to learn systems. He has taught me um how to put my words in proper communication into actually how to talk properly how to explain properly and um you know i i see what he does on a day-to-day basis in like some kind of format i've seen his um kind of development of the last two years and as well as my own development and for him to do what he does in like I've seen him go be relegated. I've seen him stay top of the league for a short while with literally, you know, like one of the poorest clubs in the league be top of the league for and actually do um, go for a promotion run um, and taught me how to actually do these things and actually get my brain working in a space where I can do these things that people know me and respect me on my own right. I just have to say him every time well i'm sure that will put you in his good books Uh, (laughs) it should it should if it doesn't i said it for nothing (laughs) just edit that bit out and send him that and go see i am nice Uh, um but listen really appreciate your time a really good conversation um and hopefully we we can stay connected and catch up again soon absolutely thank you for having me on it's been a really really uh good and detailed chat perfect catch you again soon Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.